Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Good morning, LBCF. We are grateful that all of you are here. Um, we actually have a special performance uh, this morning by Dushka. She has performed for us before, and so we are going to invite her up right now. Would you like to come up? Good morning, dear brothers and sisters. I'm standing here on sacred ground, and uh, I would like to dedicate this dance to all the mothers here, and I will dance to the glory of God.
That was beautiful. Thank you so much for that. That was amazing. Okay, I have one more thing for you guys. So um, there's a poem that I'll be reading today for all the nurturers and caregivers out there. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experience loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or run away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointment, we walk with you. Forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't mean to make this harder than it is. To those who foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who experience abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who live through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we mourn that life has not turned out the way you longed for it to be. To those who step parent, we walk with you on those complex paths. To those who envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not to be, we grieve with you. To those who will have emptier nest in this um, upcoming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. To those who place children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expecting and surprising, we anticipate with you. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst. We remember you. Thank you so much, Tati and Lishka, for uh, your wonderful dance. Um, you know, listening to that um, Mother's Day um, poem, um, it just makes me see just the nuances of life. Um, it's, it's hard. Um, Mother's Day, you know, I know a lot of people that don't like to come to church on Mother's Day because of some of those things. But to, um, yeah, to all the moms, the women here um, who hold some of those things and even things that we weren't able to write out, we, we just want to honor you and thank you for who you are. Uh, today, um, I'm going to um, continue the series on living and loving like Jesus, and we have a lot to cover today. 
And for those of you that have heard me before, you know I like to tell stories, but um, today it's going to be a lot of scripture. Um, and there's a lot. Warning, it's going to be a longer message, and I'm going to try to talk fast. Uh, but I, I believe, you know, this message is important because I think, you know, our, our life, our morality needs to be grounded in, in, in Christ and in, in scripture. And so we are a church about that. And also, um, I know that, you know, some things that I sometimes say um, might not, um, you know, people don't always agree with. And so just know that I am so open to conversation. And with that said, I want you to know that um, I know there's a lot of new people here as well. Um, if you've been coming for a little bit and are still trying to figure out LBCF, uh, just know that the pastors are here, um, you know, for you. We want to meet you. If you want to have coffee, lunch, or something like that, you know, please, I, I would love to get to know you, to get to know your story, or if you have any questions and things like that. Um, our church has um, a lead team of pastors composed of Three pastors, Ryan, who was on sabbatical right now, um, and then Mary, um, who's with the children, and myself. Um, and then we also have Pastor Barbara. She's retired, but not really, right? <laughs> so she's always, you know, in, in, uh, involved with everyone, and, and we love that. Uh, but, yeah, we want to get to know you and, you know, hope that you will find LBCF as your home. But let me pray before we begin. God, thank you for this time to, um, again, search the scriptures. Um, God, through um, your word, we would um, continue to learn how to live and love like Jesus. And so, God, we invite you into this space. We pray that you would be present with all of our wrestling, with all the nuance, with all the lack of understanding um, that we have, that I have. And even now, as I think about um, the pages in front of me, I think about how unformed and so many questions I still have. But God, um, as we are in this process and journey, um, I pray that, God, we would be centered on you. And so use this time, um, God, to form us. In Christ's name, amen. Now, last year, my wife and I uh, went to Italy. And before that, I decided to watch some YouTube videos um, you know, f um, just to figure out, you know, where to visit and uh, what to explore in the different cities we were going to. And I, I came across this one Italian blogger who was, you know, trying to describe Italy and just, just the customs and cultures. And, and he said one of the things about Italians is that they love food. Uh, they not only love food, but um, food is about family. It's about togetherness. It's about being unhurried and unrushed. And so when you're in a restaurant... You know, the, the waiters aren't trying to push you out of the restaurant. They expect you to actually stay for a couple of hours and just, like, savor the moment. And, and he said, like, when they're at home, they're, it's, it's, you know, it's about experiencing the richness of the flavor, to talk about the food, to talk about family. And he said, whenever I see people in Italy um, walking and eating, I know that they're from America. <laughs> <laughs> And he said, I don't understand you Americans, especially the people in New York. They're just like always on the go. Or people are going through drive throughs and eating in the car and getting to their next thing. And, and he said that's so different from Italian culture. And I know that's the case, you know, in not only Italy, but in other, like, you know, cultures around the world. Um, there's something about being in the U.S. where we are on the rush. Um, and it's not just about, like, being on the rush. I think, you know, there are a lot of other, like, social taboos. Um, 
you know, that even in, that I have. And I was thinking about one. And I remember when I was working as a professional picture framer um, here in Long Beach um, when I was going to the seminary, um, there was one time where I was eating my food and then I couldn't finish it, so I threw it in the trash. And then my coworker looked at the trash and he goes, why are you throwing that away? And began to take it out of the trash and eat. And I was like, what are you doing? I threw that in the trash. And he goes, oh, don't worry, it didn't touch anything. And in my mind, I, I grew up that once something is in the trash, you just don't eat it. You just don't touch it. And I realized then that, you know, we, we are different. We have different social taboos. And, and you know, I, I say all of that because when, when I, I remember when I was, like, first reading through the Bible, when I was in high school, you know, I was I'm challenged to read through the whole Scripture and, you know, it was fun reading through Genesis and all of that and Exodus story and, and things. But then when I got to Leviticus, all of a sudden, it was like, what is going on here? Why are they talking about circumcision? I mean, it's like I was like as a, like a ninth grader, I was kind of freaking out. And, and there were a lot of <coughs> hard thing about uh, having a wireless mic and a coffee <laughs> trying to hide it. But anyway, reading through Leviticus, you know, there were some things that were really confusing, awkward, and in my mind, outwardly bizarre. For instance, in Leviticus 21, verse 16, um, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring through their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a blind man or lame or one who has a mutilated face or limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. They're not qualified to offer the bread to God. Now, I remember reading this for the first time and thinking, this is really strange. It actually made me feel uncomfortable. And even now reading it makes me feel uncomfortable because I feel like within the pages of Scripture, you know, discriminating people with disabilities is written into law. And, and how do I, as a, as a follower of God, and how am I supposed to interpret this? Now imagine if the qualifications of our church was, was this. In order for, the, for you to help serve communion, you had to be someone that was basically perfect. I mean, there's not a lot of people who would be able to stand up here. I know that I would fail. I would not be qualified, um, you know, in looking at this list. And so there were a lot of questions in my mind reading Leviticus. Why is that even there? It makes no sense. It feels, it feels actually wrong. But, but it doesn't stop there, right? Leviticus verse, chapter 11, verse 9. Now it's talking about food. And it says, These you may eat of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales. Whether in the seas or the rivers, you may eat. In other words, anything with fins and scales, you can eat fish. But anything in the seas or the rivers that, that does not have fins and scales, 
of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters, it's detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall detest their carcasses. And so now it's, it's said you can eat fish, but everything else, you can't eat shrimp, you can't eat lobster, crab, oyster, eels, or, or any of that, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and it seems pretty random and illogical. Um, and yet that's, you know, what we find, uh, you know, through the law, through the book of Leviticus. And how do we make sense of that? Is there a moral logic that is going on? And so in order to understand, you know, the biblical understanding of, of clean and unclean, pure and impure, what's holy, what's detestable, what is called an abomination, you know, we have to figure out what these words, <coughs> what these words um, mean. Um, why are things, you know, being categorized in such things? You know, Deuteronomy 14.3 says, you know, do not eat any detestable things. Um, and the question in my mind is, was, is, is this an absolute truth that is applicable to all people in all times? And, you know, reading through Deuteronomy, the answer is no. Because there's an interesting passage in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 21. It says this. And let me, let me know if it, it strikes you also as odd. It says, do not eat anything you find already dead. Okay, that, that's fine. You may give it to the foreigner residing in any of your towns, and they may eat it, or you may sell it to any other foreigner, but you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And so now, Scripture is saying, it's okay if you sell it and give it to someone else. But you yourself can't eat it. And here's the, here's the th key phrase here. Because you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Um, and so why is this even here? If it's not an absolute truth, what is, again, the moral logic behind these commandments? There was a, a researcher, an anthropologist by the name of uh, Mary Douglas who wrote this groundbreaking book entitled Purity and Danger. It came out in 1966 and has since influenced many theologians and anthropologists uh, because she decided to study why these um, rules and rituals were in place, not in, only in like, you know, Leviticus, but in many other teachings around the world. And so she set out to, you know, understand, and there was a common thread um, you know, and it was this understanding of what purity is. And she describes in her book that it involved the usage of the word dirt. And she said, if you think about dirt, um, when it's out in the land and dirt is in, in the land, you don't consider the land dirty. Why? Because it's in its proper place. But once dirt gets on a shirt, once dirt gets on your dinner table, once dirt gets in your computer keyboard, now you label that thing as dirty. Why? Because it, it's not in its proper place. Shirts should be clean. Shirts shouldn't be contaminated. And once they have dirt, they become dirty. 
And so she, she talked about how purity in Leviticus has to do with holiness and, and separateness, that, that things have to be categorized and, and separate. And so the word profane literally means ordinary. And so in Scripture, you constantly found the separation that holiness is ascribed to God and everything outside of God is, is profane and ordinary. And so if you put these thoughts together about purity and holiness in the context of Leviticus, now you start to think about like other, other laws in Leviticus. For instance, skin disruptions, right? It says anyone who has skin diseases, anyone who has an itch, anyone who is bleeding is considered unclean. Now why is that detestable? Why is that considered impure or unholy? Because skin disruptions somehow break or blur the boundaries of the body. Blood belongs inside the body. And anytime blood is like starting to come out, anytime blood is not in its proper place, like dirt, it's considered unclean. And that's why Leviticus 15.9 says, when a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, and anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. And so written in Scripture was this idea that if, if your mom or your sister or, or yourself were, were experiencing, you know, your regular flow of blood, you were considered unclean, and you weren't allowed to be touched or touch anyone. Now, talk about this, like, social taboo. It's like, what is this moral logic? Why are we now stigmatizing women's periods? And it isn't just about women's periods, right? And in fact, Leviticus 15, 16, which is hardly ever read in Scripture, um, it says, when a man has an emission of semen, he must bathe his whole body with water. And he will be clean till evening. Did you know that passage was there in Scripture? That if a man has an emission of semen, he's supposed to, like, bathe himself, be washed in water. When a man has sexual relationships with a woman and there is an emission of semen, both of them must bathe. And so, again, this, 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 this coming out of bodily fluids was considered unclean in scripture and and so it was um, stigmatized and so going back to food you know why is it that lobster shrimp and mussels and oysters aren't permissible when you look at um, food in Leviticus it says don't eat anything that lacks scales and fins and so the moral logic here is that because shrimp and lobster have legs they were considered unclean they blurred the boundary between what was considered land animals and sea creatures. Why? Land animals had feet. Sea creatures did not. And so lobsters and crabs, it was hard to figure out for the, for the Jewish mindset, for the people who were committed to the law, to figure out, is this really a land creature or is this a sea creature? It lives in the ocean, but it has feet. And so it blurred the boundaries. It blurred the lines. And, and you find all of this, the, these kind of like this, this moral logic happening in Leviticus time and time again. 
In fact, Leviticus 19.19 says, Don't sow in your field two kinds of seeds. It also says you shall not wear garment of clothes made of two kinds of material. So if you're wearing something that has both cotton and polyester, guess what? That's against the law. And so why is this happening? And, And the reason for this, the reason why there were so much, the law was embedded in so much categories was this. The moral logic behind all of these commandments that we consider strange falls into the issues of purity that was grounded in wholeness and separateness. In fact, it was grounded in the very creation story itself. And so if you think about creation, right, Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void. Tohu wabohu, chaotic. It was, it was darkness and empty, and, and the Spirit of God, it says, hovered over the surface of the waters. But then God said, let there be light, and there was light, and the light was good. And he separated, he categorized light from darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning. And so from the first day of creation, we see that God begins to create this binary. Out of the darkness and void and things that were disordered, the, surf, the, the Spirit hovered over the surface of the deep and started to make this beautiful creation. And the first thing God did was He separated darkness from light. And, and not only that, God separates land from water, land animals from sea creatures. Things that flew in the sky versus things that walked in the earth. He separated the heavens and the earth. And finally, he created man as distinct from women. And so in all of creation, you find that God was continually creating this this binary. And so the creation narrative was this description of of God's creative act. And, And so as creation brings order... From this order, Leviticus now seeks to bring order to the people of Israel, to distinguish them as separate from the ordinary. In order for Israel to distinguish itself as the people of God, as the people of faith, they they were given these laws so that they would become wholly like God, that everything they did would be a reflection of who God is. In the same way, God created all these different categories and all these different distinctions, these dietary laws, these um, ceremonial laws, these practices were embedded into the very creation story itself. And so Mary Douglas, the anthropologist I cited earlier in her book, Purity and Danger, says this, The dietary laws would have been like signs which at every turn inspired mediation on the oneness, purity, and completeness of God. By rules of avoidance, holiness was given a physical expression. In every encounter with the animal kingdom and at every meal, observance of the dietary rules would thus have a meaningful part of the great liturgical act of recognition and worship which was culminated in the sacrifice in the temple. 
And we kind of know that what that means, right, as a church when we participate in communion. We participate in the act of taking the bread, the wine, the herb, and we, we partake of it as a reflection of the story of Jesus, of the story of liberation, of the story of the cross, of his sacrifice, of his death. Now think about the communion story, but multiply it a hundred times over. For the people of Israel, every meal was an act of worship. When they chose to eat certain things, when they chose not to eat certain things, it was a reflection of them saying, we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We worship the God of Genesis. We, in all that we do, whether we, whatever we eat, how we plant our seed, what we, what we wear in our, in our, in our backs, everything we do, all of life is sacred. And so this, this Jewish mindset that was embedded in the law of Leviticus was a reflection of the creative order. And if you look at Leviticus in that mindset, now you begin to see this pattern emerge. And now you begin to see why certain things are clean and unclean. Because it belongs not in disorder, but in the beauty of creation. God bringing things that are disordered into order. And if it doesn't follow into that, then it was considered unclean and even detestable. And so now, why am I giving this history lesson in Leviticus? Why is this so important? Well, I think it's important because it helps us to understand the life of Jesus and why Jesus himself was so controversial. Religious leaders in the time of Christ were committed to the Levitical practices long before Jesus came into the scene. In fact, the word Pharisee Pharisee actually means separated ones, right? They were sanctified. They were separated for God. And so the religious leaders in the time of Christ took great care to follow the purity codes, uh, the moral codes, to worship God in this way and to bring attention to creation. It was to go back to creation. And, and, and a lot of it was because of what was found in Deuteronomy. If you're familiar with Deuteronomy, it, it speaks about the curses and the blessings. In Deuteronomy chapter eleven thirteen, it says, The Lord says you must be careful to the commands I give you today. You must love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Then verse 16, it says, Be careful, don't be fooled, don't turn away from me to serve other gods. If you do that, the Lord will become angry with you. He will shut the skies and there will be no rain. But verse 18, remember these commands I give you. Keep them in the heart. Keep them in your hearts. Write them down. Tie them on your hands and wear them on your foreheads. And and listen to how descriptive it is, how all-encompassing. You know, Scripture is is trying to say how God has to be a part of your everyday life. It says, write them down and tie them on your hands and wear them on your foreheads on the way you remember the law. Teach these laws to your children. Talk about these things when you sit in your house. In other words, eating. When you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up, write these commands on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then both you and your children will live a long time in the land. 
that the Lord promised to give your ancestors. You will live there as long as the sky is above the earth. And so Deuteronomy says, if, if you like, are so devoted and do this every moment of the day, God will bless you. God will allow you to be in the land. But in verse 29, 20, 26, today I am giving you a choice. You may choose the blessing or the curse. You will get the blessing if you listen and obey the commands of the Lord your God that I have given you today. But you will get the curse if you refuse to listen and obey the commands of God. So don't stop living the way I command you and don't follow other gods that, I, that you don't know. The Lord your God will lead you to your land. You will so soon go in and take that land. And this, this commandment was at the very center, right, of what it meant to, like, commit to become a faithful follower of God. It was basically saying, if you stray away from these commandments, guess what? You are going to lose the land. If you follow these commandments, I will bless you. It's your choice. And so the people of God, upon hearing these commandments, they knew that the reason why they were enslaved for 400 years now, and this time up to this, this Roman government, they, they were this oppressed people. Because they didn't possess the land, they weren't autonomous in their ability to rule. It was a sign to them that they had strayed away from God. The fact that they were under Roman rule was a sign that the people of Israel had broken the commandments. And so the religious leader's task was to bring the people of God again into the beauty of God's creation, away from disorder toward salvation, back to the land of promise. And the way they did that was by insisting that people committed to following the law. And so that makes sense now, right? When, when someone's caught in committing adultery, when someone breaks the Sabbath, it's your fault. It's your fault that we are here. It's your fault that we are being oppressed. And there was this, like, desire from so many of the leaders to put everyone, like, in, in, in the right path. And I am quickly running out of time. I'm so sorry. I'm going to try to... Um, Try to skip through these things. And, and so, you know, part of, you know, trying to obey the law was, was trying to make sure that they were back into receiving the blessings of God. And so the question was, is Jesus unconcerned about purity? Not at all, because the Gospels, you know, speak of Jesus as the one who cleansed the people. In fact, there's a story in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy left and was cleansed. Now think about it. If you're a leper and you see Jesus coming by you, what would be the first thing you would say? 
I know what I would say. I would say, Jesus, can you heal me? But that's not what the leper says. The leper asked Jesus, will you make me clean? Because in the leper's mind, the issue wasn't so much that he had leprosy, but it was the fact that he had become unclean. And his being, you know, a leper wasn't just this inconvenience, but it was outside the line of purity, and therefore he was outside of the will of God. His leprosy was indication that he had chosen to do wrong. And so that's why this leper was saying, Jesus, make me clean. And what Jesus does is he touches him and, and he becomes clean. And following that, his leprosy goes away. And I wish I had time to go through all these other scripture, but that what I think was happened in the coming of Christ is that something in the DNA of the universe changed. Before Jesus, separation was essential because you could catch impurity. You needed to separate yourself. Don't allow yourself to be touched by dead carcasses or blood. Why? Because you'll become impure. But now Jesus comes into the world and begins to show us that it's not, what on, it's not what's on the outside that makes you unclean, but it's on the inside. And so Jesus shows us that he wasn't afraid of, of hugging people with leprosy or being touched by a woman who was bleeding or by eating and dining with sinners and tax collectors and all of that. Why? Because he wasn't afraid of being infected like so many of the leaders understood. Jesus, in fact, reversed the contagion. He reversed the disease. Because of his life, things were being made clean. James Brownson, in his book, Bible and Gender, he says, one of the unwavering assumptions of the purity codes in the Old Testament is that the holy things and holy persons become unclean and impure by contact with unholy things and unholy persons. Impurity is conceived of as contagious. This is why separation from impurity is such a critical part of the purity codes. Simply touching someone who is unclean makes you unclean. But in the ministry of Jesus, this flow of contagion is reversed. In repeated instances in Jesus' ministry, his own holiness and power drive out impurity. Jesus does not, need, does not regard himself as contaminated when he touched lepers. Instead, the lepers became clean. And, and so on. It was this reversal. And so after the death and resurrection of Jesus, in fact, the life of Jesus continually showed that he was no longer following this, this binary way of separation and purity, but Jesus had, had reversed and created this different narrative. And, and so the book of Acts begins to show, right, what, what happened. And so the reason, you know, why, you know, the, I, I, you know one, one of the, let me back up a little, one of the most interesting and overlooked events, I think, that happened during the death of Christ was in Matthew 27, 50, when Jesus cried out in a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. It says there that at that moment, the temple of the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, if you know what the temple of the curtain is, it's what separated the holy of holies from everything else. And why would this temple be torn? It's because 
there is no longer this holy of holies. Everything has become sacred. Everything has been, become new. This is a new creation. And so instead of looking at other people like Gentiles as unclean, everybody has become clean. And so Jesus or, or Peter, you know, saw that vision from heaven and God speaks to him and says, don't say that anything is, that is common or ordinary is unclean anymore. I'm giving, I've made everything new. All things have become clean. And it's not just, you know, food. It's, it, it's people and it's, it's other things. It, you know, it, even Colossians says, it's no longer about the Sabbath day because every day has become holy. There is no longer this distinction between what is, what is spiritual and what is profane. That somehow this binary way of looking at creation was somehow altered and changed through the life of Christ. And one of the beautiful stories is found actually in the book of Acts, chapter 8. If you remember, the very first passage I read was that no one with crushed testicles would be able to offer the bread of sacrifice in, in the temple. Um, you know, people with crushed testicles were, were otherwise referred to as eunuchs. In fact, they were the original non-binary population of Scripture. They were considered outsiders. Why? Because they didn't fit the binary. Men had testicles. Women didn't. And here we have eunuchs who, um, you know, were, were excluded from places of worship, were, were excluded and, and considered unclean. And so there's this beautiful story in Acts chapter 8 where this Ethiopian eunuch is reading the scriptures in the chariot and God leads Philip to jump onto the chariot with him and, you know, basically asks Philip, what does this mean? And then after Philip explains the scriptures, the eunuch asks, look, here's a water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? What can stand in the way of me being included within the family of faith? And Philip couldn't think of anything. I'm sure Leviticus 21 came to his mind. But Philip, like Peter, like Jesus, began to understand that we can no longer exclude. And this eunuch was baptized. I'll close with the story. Um, I, I have a friend who came out as trans. And um, originally came out as trans and was um, expelled from the church. And then uh, some time later, when she was having health issues, um, they actually found uh, fallopian tubes and ovaries inside the body. It was discovered that my friend was actually intersex. And sh she couldn't figure out for the longest time, like, Nobody believes that, like, I, I believe I'm a, I'm, I'm a woman, but nobody believes me. And then, you know, when the surgery found out, you know, it was accidental discovery. 
And, and she began to read me this passage in Isaiah 56.3, which says, you know, this is kind of this prophetic um, word that says, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. And so in this passage, there is this, this self-hatred, right? There is this feeling like I am a dry tree. I can bear no fruit. This, this person doesn't fit into the creative narr- creation narrative. It's someone who isn't heteronormative. But then in verse 4, it says, For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial in a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And she began to weep as she read the story to me because she said, you know what, for the longest time I felt like a disordered person, excluded. I felt like a dry tree. But within the pages of Scripture, there's always these glimpses of hope that that project into the future. And then here it says, God is giving you a new name, better than sons and daughters. And she reflected on this and realized that the name change was so important for her. But in fact, she will still be given a new name. A new name that it says that will be better than sons and daughters. I will give you an everlasting name that will endure forever. And it was a reminder for her that God made me special. For the longest time, I felt like I was disordered, a dry tree. But now I see that God made me uniquely me. And if there's anything we can take away from this message, it's, it's, it's this. It's to fully accept who you are. You know, there, there are a lot of codes that are still like ingrained in our mind, like stigmatizing women's periods. Why are women's periods still stigmatized to this day? You know, on Mother's Day, let's destigmatize women's periods. Enjoy shrimp on your Mother's Day meal. <laughs> but mostly accept yourself with all your flaws and imperfection, with all your scars, with all your woundedness. There may have been a time when you were excluded from being able to participate. But because of Jesus, because Jesus ushering in a new creation, Jesus says, you are loved, you are baptized, you are mine. And so let's rejoice in that. And I'm so sorry, there's so much more. I wish I could tie up loose ends. But we'll end there. And right now I'd like to call up the people um, who will help me serve communion. Um, and let me pray for us. God in heaven, thank you for um, this time to do a, a dive into your word and to try to figure out the moral logic behind all these confusing commandments. 
But ultimately, we thank you that because of Jesus, because of the new creation, we don't have to live in this binary way of looking at the world anymore. That God, all things are good. You're making all things beautiful in your time. You love everyone. Everyone needs to be included. And so thank you for for seeing us as we are with all of our flaws and imperfections. And so we come to the table now reminded of how Jesus changes the world, how Jesus loves us. We bless your name. Amen.